0: Before I get into our text today, I want to say uh, one quick word and then uh, pray together. There's a passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But this is what the passage reads. The natural person, so when it says natural, It's saying the unbeliever, it's supernatural to be a believer in Christ. So it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. Unable. This passage that I just read is such a challenge to me as one who believes with all of my heart that I've been called by the God of the universe himself to teach God's people his word. Because when I read this passage, I realize that the natural person, and when I used to talk to my own father about Things of the faith, he was not a believer. It was clear to me, it was just folly to him. It was ridiculous. And as a son, it was so hard because I wanted him to see what I was seeing. And I wanted him to treasure what I was treasuring because I had come to a place where it was the greatest treasure in the world. And yet, to him, It was silly. It was folly. And so, as a pastor, one called, even in our text today, to teach God's people his word. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend to my lamb. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you know... That if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, does not come now and work in the hearts of those that are His sitting in these pews, nothing supernatural will happen over the next few minutes. Only natural things will happen. A preacher will get up and he'll talk, but there'll be no true Seeing of God there'll be no true treasuring him there'll be no way for you in your natural state to just see what is the greatest treasure in the universe and so my task is impossible without the Holy Spirit so pray with me that the Holy Spirit will come And that he will speak to his people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I believe your word is true. And all through the Gospel of John, you have told your disciples that you're going to send your precious Holy Spirit, and he will indwell them, and he will make known to them the things that he has said. And so now, would your Holy Spirit come and speak to your people? Even as they sit here in front of me, there would be something supernatural happening in this room this morning. Not not just simply natural. For some, I know this will be a natural day. But I pray that you would break through as only you can break through and they would see Jesus. They would see you for who you really are. Come now, Jesus. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, we've come a long way. We're now at the end of the Gospel of John. In other words, because of an expository preaching method that we're following, I have literally preached on every verse through the whole book of John, and now we are at the very last chapter. Most call it, An epilogue and if you're like me you might have went you know I think I know what an epilogue is but I'm not hundred percent sure so I looked it up and I'm going to share it with you on the screen you should be able to see the definition it's a section or speech at the end of a book or play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened so John 21 is often considered an epilogue. It is the conclusion and it comments on what has happened. It actually is kind of pulling it all together. And for organizational, a lot of you are engineers because many of you went to Georgia Tech and I know you love organization. I'm going to help you out right here. You can organize this in three major segments. The epilogue, John 21. Here's a way to think about it. The first section of this chapter 21 is the revelation to the seven the seven disciples that are there by the sea of Tiberias so in John 21 1 through 14 that's what we have and I'm going to take these each one by one the second part is there's this three-part conversation between Jesus and Peter and you'll see that in John 21 15 through 23 And then the third and final part is a short piece, and it's just the authentication and the conclusion that John, the writer of our gospel, gives, saying that he's the one that wrote this, that he's an eyewitness to Jesus, and he's the one that put this down for us and future generations to see. So those are the three parts of the epilogue, which is John 21. Let's look now at our text together and preferably uh, if you have a Bible open your Bible to John 21 and let's look at verses 1 through 8 together and I will comment John 21 1 through 8 after this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together, so we get seven. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, it's interesting, in most commentaries it says they weren't really just in one boat. that In, in uh, biblical times, seven of them would have taken two boats, and the reason they would have taken two boats is they would have a net, and they would share the net between each boat. And by having two boats, they could pull the nets as they rowed and, and capture the fish that way. Interesting tidbit. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which you should know by now when it says that, that's John. He's referring to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Sounds a little uh, egomaniac, you you know, like he's got a little ego there, but I don't really think that's it. Um, He's trying to defer. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer outer garments. I think in the NIV it says that he was naked. Uh, The truth is, most commentaries say he wasn't fully naked. He had on something. He just put on more as he jumped into the water to swim to the shore. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. Notice in our text right there in the beginning, it says, Peter decided to go fishing. He says to them, you know, remember, if you go back in the chapter in 20, Jesus has been crucified. Peter has denied him three times. And now you kind of get this idea like they're just kind of sitting around. There's about seven of them. And Peter says, well, I'm going fishing. I mean, it's almost the way it's communicated. And the rest of them go, well, we'll go with you. Almost like we don't have anything else to do. We'll go with you. But what if maybe... All of, Just follow me on this. What if the disciples, those other six guys, they knew Peter was hurting? He had denied Jesus three times. Not only had he denied him, but he had said, I'll never deny you. Dogmatically, brashly, Peter had said, I'll never deny you. And Jesus told him, he said, before the crock crows three times, You will deny me. And when he denied him on the third time, he crowed. And he caught eyes, it says in Luke, with Jesus. Could you imagine how low of a moment that was for Peter? The shame that Peter has been feeling ever since this denial this third time. And so I'm going to propose something that I didn't read anywhere but I think that it is helpful what if Peter said I'm gonna go fishing and the other disciples said he doesn't need to be alone why don't we go with him we'll go with you you see shame is a powerful thing you know what shame does it makes us hide shame disconnects us from other people often when we're experiencing shame maybe maybe it's uh, a secret substance abuse maybe it's you've been through a failed marriage maybe it's one of your children and they're not doing well and you don't want people to know and maybe it's you at work haven't measured up and you feel it in your soul like I'm not making the cut there's a shame that comes with all of that. And let me say this. You may be sitting here and, say, and thinking to yourself, I don't really feel like I have much shame. And I would say to you, baloney, every person in here goes through periods and times of deep shame. And when we do, what we like to do in those moments is cut ourselves off from other people because when we get around other people, it exposes us and it exposes our shame. You wonder why Americans are so individualistic? A whole, whole lot of it is shame. We don't wanna be known. We would rather not be known. And so we go to places where we can hide and we pull in our garage and we shut our door and we stay in our homes or when we, uh, and that's one of the challenges of being in a, a smaller church, by the way. In a smaller church, you're going to probably be known, and so it's harder sometimes. And by the way, I think that the church is the place where God wants to do a deep sanctifying work in our lives by us being known and knowing other people. And so, when we've experienced shame, we we try to block people out, and then we we disconnect. Peter, in this text, it doesn't say this, but it could be. He's kind of just wallowing in the shame of the denial, and he says, I'm going fishing, and they won't let him be alone. I don't know if that's what really is happening here, but I think that's what should happen in God's church. We shouldn't let people put up walls and live alone. We weren't made for that. And God gives us the church to help us not live like that. So, if Peter's disciples would have been Texans, they might, after Peter's third denial, felt like this about Peter, and I bet Peter felt this about himself. Could you imagine them saying, Peter, you're all hat, no cattle? You acted like a big man. You told Jesus you'd never deny Him, but in reality, when the, when the heat got turned up, you ran like a coward. How could He ever, Peter I'm saying, ever enjoy the simple pleasure of someone's respect again? He had been shamed by His failure in the presence of His closest friends publicly shamed and embarrassed how do you recover from that shame has power over us all i'm encouraged by the text that the guys didn't let him go and be alone even in his failure peter seems to stay connected that's the other thing is peter himself was with those other men he could have went off somewhere and hid and got depressed and stayed depressed and been alone and just got further and further and further in a hole. But Peter must have chosen at some point to stay with the other disciples. And I think that's important for us. True ministry now for Peter might be impossible. On one hand, he could have spent the balance of his life working out for the kingdom and promoting Jesus' cause, he could have become one of the most zealous apostles, intolerant of those who might compromise like he did, inflexible with any who didn't take discipleship at the utmost seriousness. Peter could have become a legalist, is the way we'd say it now. Doing the right things, always doing the right things. Why? Because internally he felt like a failure. Internally he knew he had denied Christ. He internally had such shame. So externally he becomes Mr. Christian. Externally, He gets it all right. He does all the things that he should do, all energy and effort. He's excellent on the surface. You could never look at Peter's life now and say, oh, he doesn't love God, because he's doing everything right. He's overcompensating for the failings earlier in his life. And let me say this. This sort of Christianity is all over the place. The shame that we feel makes us do good But here's the catch, and this later Peter gets, and I pray you do too. It's not Christianity and the gospel. It's not about doing good. Yes, we do good because God comes in and changes us through the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. It's about doing right for the right reasons and most of us do right for sordid reasons but they're not the right reasons the right reasons is I have experienced the grace of God the transforming goodness I have seen him I have treasured him and he is transforming me from inside out and all I want to do is serve him my father was a great father not a great husband. He wasn't a Christian. He had three failed marriages. But when it came to his kids, he was really, really loving. And my father could tell me almost anything, and I would do it. As a matter of fact, at one point he had asked me to uh, to cut the yard, and uh, I can I'll never forget it. I was it's the first time he'd ever asked me to do it. He'd always had my older brother do it. I was so excited to go cut the grass have you ever met a 10 year old 11 year old that's really excited to cut grass I was that's exactly right I was excited to cut grass why because I loved my father and I knew when he came home and he said so who cut the grass I was going to be able to say I did that because it would bring him joy that's how we serve Christ We do it because it brings our Father joy. Not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. On the other hand, Peter could have become a man filled with despair. Seeing his own weaknesses so directly, knowing that Jesus had seen it too. And not only Jesus had seen it, but his friends, the apostles, had seen his failure. Yes, Peter could have continued in ministry and kind of hidden away that shame, packed away that burden somewhere deep in the recesses of his soul. But you know what would eventually have happened and what does happen to us? Eventually, self-criticism and depression and spiritual pessimism begin to erode our soul. You can't serve Christ trying to earn his favor. You can't truly serve him because you feel terrible about your sin. Those are horrible motives. Doing the right things for the right reasons is super challenging. The burden Peter would have felt would have sapped his energy. It would have caused him fear and disappointing God and disappointing himself. And so, in our text, Jesus knew all of this must be going on in Peter's heart. And he wanted to reinstate Peter. And so, that is exactly what he did. Look with me at John 21, 15 through 19. John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, the question must be asked. When he says, do you love me more than these? There's only a few objects that he could be talking about. One would be, and and you may laugh, but there's possible, there's a possibility here. Do you love me more than these fish? Remember, they just caught 153 fish. Now, I also will say people have taken that 153 number and done millions of things with it that are just ridiculous I think the whole point of the 153 was a lot that was the point they caught a lot of fish Um, not you know well 100 of them was uh, the end of the zygote monster trio I mean it's just you wouldn't believe how many theories are out there about the 153 I tend to think scripture is more simple than that that he's not hiding codes from us in these numbers and so It could be Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these fish? It also could be Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than these other men that are here at breakfast? I think it is. He's saying, do you love me more than the men? Do you love me more than anything else, Peter? And so he says it again. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said it a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. In other words, you're omniscient, you're God, you know this. Why do you keep asking? Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. You see, the 153 was not a miracle for unbelievers. Like, all through John, Jesus is turning water into wine. He's raising people from the dead. He's performing these miracles, and, and the author, John, is recording them. Why? He said in the end of John chapter 20, so that we might believe, that non-believers would believe. But you know what the whole point is? of the catching of the fish. They fished all night, remember? And they caught nothing. Jesus shows up on the shore, and he says, hey guys, how much did you catch? And Peter's like, nada. And he's like, well, "I throw the net out to the right and see what happens. And they throw it out, and they catch all of these fish. And then John, Peter doesn't recognize Jesus. John does the disciple who Jesus loved. And Peter, when John tells him who it is, he swims to the shore, he leaves the fish, and he goes to be with Jesus. You might say, well, that's good. But maybe when you hear the answer of what the fish represent, you don't know. Because I think what the whole purpose of the catch of the day was a commissioning to the disciples. This was not a miracle to convince them that Jesus was Jesus. They already knew that. Nobody else saw the miracle. This miracle was to say to them, you're going to be fishers of men. You're going to catch masses of people for my kingdom. And so after they catch all of those fish, he gets them, and he's sitting there by the fire. It is interesting, just a side note, let your brain chase this. Jesus already had some fish. They have 153. If you read the text closely, Jesus already had some fish on the fire. In my little weird mind, I'm sitting there thinking, so did those fish ever really swim? Did they ever really be hatched? Or did he just conjure them up like he did Adam and Eve on on a particular day? You know, fish on the fire. I tend to think those fish probably never swam. He's God. He can do miracles he didn't even need their 153 fish but he's trying to tell them as he sits by them with them at the fire with these fish he's saying you see Matthew 4 19 says come follow me I'll make you fishers of men and he's communicating this commissioning at the end of before he goes and ascends to be with the father and that's the point, but he also is telling Peter, he's reinstating him, he's saying, why, you know, you ask the question, why did he ask him three times, and I will say that I have listened to probably at least five sermons that get into the Greek words of agape and phileo, Let that Jesus is saying, do you love me? And when he says love one time, it's agape. It's a different Greek word. And when he says love another time, it's phileo. One is kind of like, do you brotherly love me? And the other one is like, do you unconditionally love me? Now, I don't think that's the point of the three questions. I think the big point of the three questions is you denied me three times, I'm going to ask you three times, and in so doing, I'm going to reinstate you as a leader of these men in front of them publicly. They're sitting here. They're hearing it. And then we also know when someone tells you something three times, it's important. They mean it. And what he's saying is, Peter, if you love me, and here, all saints right here, if, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. I want your heart to hear this. This is important. God is saying to you like he did Peter, if you love me, you'll fish. You'll fish for men's souls, men and women. That is a sign of a true follower of Christ. And not only will you fish, but you will feed them you'll teach them my word you'll teach them my truth you might be sitting there am I a Christian if you're not fishing and you're not feeding and you're not following which is the title of the sermon you're probably not a Christian you know one of the the biggest things I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 or 21 I forget And I remember thinking when I would hear somebody try to share the gospel with somebody, proselytize, that it was foolish. In my mind, from one to 20, it was like, you believe that? I don't think I could ever believe that. And then I became a Christian. And God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, came inside me and began to transform me. And then there was this passion to tell people about what had happened in my life. All of a sudden, I was seeing things I never saw, and I was treasuring things I never treasured, and I remember coming back from a project, only being a Christian about six months, and I'm riding down the road with someone that was very close to me and my family, and he's singing this song, and in the song, the lyrics are all jacked up. I mean, it's just all about murder and killing and all this stuff and he's listening to it and he's singing along and he's having a great time and I'm sitting there and I'm hearing the lyrics for the very first time and I'm thinking, he doesn't, he, he doesn't hear that. He really doesn't hear that. And I thought to myself, I'm seeing different. I'm seeing things I never saw. I'm understanding things I never understood. God has really transformed me. He has worked in my life. And I began to try to share the gospel with that person right then. I said, turn down the music for a minute. And he turned the music down, and I started to share with him. And he just thought I was an idiot. I know he did. The whole conversation went, and I thought to myself, "He he can't appreciate this. He can't see Christ and so it's interesting Jesus gives him the three questions Peter responds every time he tells him to feed his sheep but Jesus isn't done with Peter just yet he's got one more what I'm going to call extremely liberating thing to say to Peter that could come across kind of harsh you see there's been a sort of competition almost If you read the gospel of John Between John and Peter There's a number of occasions That are not so subtle Comparisons made between the two Throughout the uh, the latter parts of the gospel John appears as the one Who seems to have insight and wisdom Peter appears to be the brash you know, Doesn't think, just jumps It is John, who enjoys an intimate conversation with Jesus in the upper room, while Peter has to make his inquiry through him. And what I mean is in the upper room, John leans back on Jesus' chest, and he says, who is it that's going to betray you? And Peter goes, hey, John, what did he say? So John is kind of in a different position than Peter. And then in chapter 18, if you go back and look at it, John knew the high priest and he gets Peter access into the courtyard because he knew the the higher ups and when Jesus is on the cross John stands faithfully with Jesus' mother at the foot of the cross and Jesus himself says that's your mother take care of Mary, John it's not Peter standing there and then if you look in John 21, it says that the other disciple outran Peter to the tomb. You know who the other disciple was? John. And so John, I don't think, is bragging. But there is this kind of somewhat competition, maybe. At least it appears that it has built up in Peter's heart. Look with me at John 21, 20, twenty three, John twenty one twenty through twenty three. This is what it says. Good job, Elena. Elena, you are now my hero. <laughs> um, in John twenty one twenty through twenty three, I'm. We're going to get that fixed one day. It's not going to go that way. Listen to how the, the scripture reads. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus told him, If John is supposed to stay here until I come back, which he wasn't saying he will be there, and the rest of the verse says that when I come back. But he was saying, If he was, what is that to you? Peter, you follow me. It's like Christ is saying to Peter and to me and to you. He's saying, Peter, that, that's my business. What happens to John, that's my business. And maybe if I said it in a guy's term, I would say it this way. And if I said it in a lady's way, I'll try in just a moment. But I think, I think Jesus almost looked at Peter and he says, stay in your lane. And Peter's like, sorry, (laughs) you know. Uh, I think if he maybe, uh, another way is he looked at Peter and by doing this, it's like he's saying, I've got something really, really good for you and I've got something really, really good for him. Don't worry about that. You do what I've called you to do. You follow me, Peter. He'll do what he's supposed to do. You should do what you're supposed to do. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, I take that verse to believe. I don't know how else you could take it. God has created works for you to do, and he's created works for me to do, and I am to walk in them so I'm going I'm to close with a story see if you can relate to this the idea is Peter I think was experiencing some jealousy about John and I don't think that's foreign to any one of us covetousness jealousy maybe envy I got a, I got a uh, invitation to attend a meeting that was going to be full of pastors you know When you're in the marketplace, uh, you compare or compete with the other people in the marketplace. Like if you're an accountant or a salesman or you kind of look at what they're doing, see if you're doing better than them. We shouldn't do that, but that's what we do. So as a Christian pastor, I get an invitation to this ITP meeting, which is inside the perimeter. All the churches inside the perimeter, all Southern Baptist churches, and I go to this meeting on Thursday. The meeting is from 11 to one o'clock. And when I arrive, I can't help but notice, it's a, it's a brand new church work. They've been planning a new church in this area for just over three years. And so, you know how long I've been here at First Baptist Chattahoochee? Just over three years. You see a little correlation there. And I, I walk in and I can't help but notice, the property this thing is sitting on is probably $10 million. It's a three-year-old church plant. The facility is brand new, state of the art. Great place, you know, great-looking place. And uh, and then they're, they're getting money from NAM, which is the North American Mission Board, and they're getting money from one of the largest Baptist churches around the Atlanta area. And Bottom line is they're getting money from everywhere, you know, and I get into a conversation with one of the staff who's a hired licensed counselor, and he says, yeah, man, we're growing so fast we can't even keep up. So I get in my car, and I'm driving home, and I'm thinking to myself, they're growing so fast they can't even keep up. It doesn't. It doesn't really, really bother me about the money. I mean, I'm serious. The money or the building, it's the growing type as I can't keep up. (laughs) And I got back to my office and I knew I needed to prepare my sermon and I started reading God's word and I got down to Peter looking at Jesus and he's saying, well, what about this guy? And it was, and this didn't physically happen, but it might as well have. It was this real. Hey, Clint, what about that church? Isn't that what you're doing, Clint? You're comparing their growth to our growth. Don't worry about them. You worry about you. You follow me. You follow me. I think that's God's message to all of us. He gives us different gifts and talents. He gives us different pain, different stories. And what he's saying is, with who I made you, will you follow me? Will you do the work that I've prepared for you to do? Will you not worry about what John's doing? Don't worry about him. You, you follow me. Let's pray.